This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Westminster's Confession, The Abandonment of Van Til's Legacy by Gary North, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright Gary North, 1991. Chapter 10, An Editor's Task, Just Say No. Quote, Harold Ross, the editor of The New Yorker, lived always in the wistful hope of getting out a magazine each week without a single mistake. His checking department became famous in the trade for a precision that sometimes leaned over backward. But overchecking was better than underchecking, in his opinion, even if it did sometimes lead to the gaucherie of inflexibility. Ross's checkers once informed H. L. Mencken that he couldn't have eaten dinner at a certain European restaurant he had mentioned in one of his New Yorker articles, because there wasn't any restaurant at the address he had given. Mencken brought home a menu with him to prove that he was right, but he was pleased rather than annoyed. Quote, Ross has the most astute goons of any editor in this country, end quote, he said. End quote. James Thurber, 1958. The editors of Theonomy, a reformed critique, desperately needed some astute goons to do some serious verification work. They needed them for at least three reasons. Waltke, Keller, and Meether. Especially Meether. I challenge the reader to ask himself as he reads this chapter, where were Barker and Godfrey? Bruce K. Waltke Waltke is not a Westminster product, nor is he a Calvin College Free University of Amsterdam product. He is also not a Gordon Conwell product. He is a product of Harvard University and the Schofield Reference Bible. By examining his essay, as well as one of his previous contributions, we can get a better idea of what the underlying problem is with Theonomy, a Reformed Critique. This problem is easy to state. The authors are united only in what they do not like. They do not like Theonomy in its present form but they have no alternative to offer. Therefore, most of them grow testy when asked by me to suggest something. They prefer to proclaim a resolute judicial agnosticism. Bruce Waltke is not a follower of Meredith G. Klein. He is not a follower of anybody, as far as his footnotes indicate. This is his theological problem. He wings it theologically every time he writes. In Theonomy, a Reformed Critique, Waltke, Th.D., Dallas Seminary, Ph.D., Harvard, offers a critique of the theological work of Greg Bonson. Rest assured, Professor Waltke is a very clever fellow. He understands the impact of rhetoric. He divides his essay into three main parts, dispensationalism, reformed theology, and theonomy. You get the picture. Theonomy is clearly not dispensational, but it is not reformed either. We're talking about three separate theological systems. If the theonomists were to concede this, we would lose the argument. Waltke merely assumes it, but if he can get the reader to conclude it, he wins the argument. He is careful to offer us theonomists this left-handed compliment. Quote, we commend theonomists for their conviction with the Reformed theologians that the law is a compatible servant of the gospel. Dot, 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 end quote. Yes, he is so very, very happy to have us theonomists standing side by side with Reformed theologians. In short, baby, the theonomists just ain't reformed. He calls his essay, quote, Theonomy in Relation to Dispensational and Covenant Theologies, end quote, 
The title tells all. What is Waltke implicitly saying? First, that the faculty of Westminster Seminary in 1973 was theologically blind? It awarded Bonson a THM on the basis of a defense of theonomy. Second, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church was woefully amiss in having ordained Dr. Bonson to the pastorate and by allowing him to retain that office, since the man espouses a non-reformed theology. But does he prove this pair of unstated accusations? No. As we shall see, he does not even come close to proving them. Waltke's Strategy How does Waltke attempt to prove that theonomy is not reformed? He structures his essay as if this were the case, but there is more to a valid argument than mere rhetoric. He raises the question of the language of the Westminster Confession regarding the general equity of biblical law. Chapter 19.4 Fair enough. I now raise the crucial response. If the Confession's general equity clause unquestionably means natural law in the medieval scholastic sense, then Van Til's work is also not reformed. It is therefore the reformed theologian's responsibility either to abandon Van Til, meaning answer him theologically and philosophically, or else admit that the confession is flawed. This would mean adopting either John Gerstner's evidentialism or Gordon Clark's rationalism. Rushduni takes the view that the confession needs revising or clarifying so as to make a break with natural law theory. So do I. Bonson takes another approach. To deny that the general equity clause means natural law, or that it meant that to the Westminster Assembly. But Waukee ignores the underlying strategies of this difference in approach between Rushduni and Bonson. He merely notes the existence of the difference. So for that matter, has the entire faculty at Westminster Seminary since 1929, including Van Til. Like the 20 million landmines that the Soviets planted in Afghanistan before they retreated in 1989, Van Til planted bombs all over the traditional reformed landscape they are still exploding. They will continue to explode with or without Dr. Waltke's tramping around the countryside without a theological roadmap. Waltke declares, quote, Westminster folk applauded them, theonomists, for basing themselves squarely on Cornelius Van Til's apologetics, end quote. Excellent. Now all we need the Westminster folk to do is to follow the logic of Van Til's apologetics and one, make a public denial of political pluralism, and two, make a formal clarification of the general equity clause of the Westminster Confession. It is to Waltke's credit that he does recognize this twofold challenge to Westminster's faculty, as well as our challenge to their amillennial eschatology. The trouble is, in his section on weaknesses, Waltke attempts to dismiss the whole of Bonson's thesis in six pages Shades of the late Robert Strong of Reformed Seminary, who took only three. Bonson's arguments are exegetically flawed. They are logically defective. He then appeals to Occam's razor. To use this sort of offhand language when dealing with a work as profound and rigorous as Theonomy and Christian Ethics, written by a man with a Ph.D. in philosophy, seems a bit presumptuous. Bonson replies to his critics in his book, no other standard. I do not need to defend him here. More than this, Waukee ceases to argue in favor of his essay's thesis, the non-reformed character of theonomy. There is not one reference to a reformed confession, systematic theology, or tradition. It is at this point that we might have expected the editors to intervene. They should have insisted on documentation. They obviously didn't. 
So he just kept going. He tells us that, quote, Bonson underestimates the role of natural law, dot, 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 end quote. Bonson is the person Van Til wanted to see replace him as professor of apologetics. Sadly, he does not understand natural law. Well now, just what has Waltke ever written to indicate that he is qualified to make such a judgment? It gets worse and worse. Quote, In fact, the Book of the Covenant probably draws heavily from the Code of Hammurabi. Dot, 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 end quote. Here it is again, the same old liberal line. Moses, for example God, borrowed the case laws from the pagans. This is why Westminster Seminary needs to offer a course on biblical chronology, focusing on the revisionist work of Isaac Newton, Emmanuel Belikovsky, Donovan Corville, and others on redating the ancient pagan kingdoms half a millennium later than what is taught in the textbooks. Someone should have told Dr. Waltke, quote, When you're in a hole, stop digging. End quote. The case of the missing book. Just how seriously should we take Waltke's scholarship? About as seriously as any doctoral dissertation advisor would take a dissertation that was found to refer to non existent sources. On page 74, Waltke cites Bonson just before his critique begins. I quote footnote 24 for verbatim. Greg Bonson, Theonomy and Christian Ethics, Nutley, New Jersey, Craig Press, 1977, page 13. His book, The Authority of God's Law Today, Tyler, Texas, Geneva, 1983, popularly explains theonomic ethics. This is not a particularly reassuring way to introduce an intelligent reader to a critique of a brilliant theologian's life work. First, there is no book by Bonson called The Authority of God's Law Today. Second, by late 1983, there was no publishing house called Geneva, which happened to be a name trademarked by the Presbyterian Church USA's Westminster Press in Philadelphia, and which told the Geneva Divinity School to cease using the name in 1982. Tyler's Geneva Divinity School had not known of the quiet trademarking of Geneva Press by the PCUSA. What Walke did was to assume that a book that had been scheduled to appear actually did appear. It never did, but he refers to it anyway. A small error? Perhaps. Bonson did refer to this book, in unwarranted high hopes, in the introduction to the 1984 version of Theonomy in Christian Ethics. He still expected it to appear soon when he wrote the introduction in 1983, but Waltke's essay appeared in late 1990. He had lots of time to discover that the book had never appeared. Why didn't he? Here's my point. When a man contributes an essay to a critical and confrontational book, an essay which purports to prove that an ordained Orthodox Presbyterian Church minister and Reformed scholar is in fact outside the Reformed theological tradition. The critic owes it to God, himself, the reader, the targeted victim, and the victim's presbytery to read all of the offending books that supposedly prove that the man's theology is deviant. Professor Walke did not bother to walk to the campus library and check out the supposed book. He therefore clearly had no intention of reading it, why bother? Walke already was certain what it must have said. No need to waste time reading another Bonson book. Nevertheless, he thought he would impress his naive and trusting readers, and the equally naive and trusting editors, with a com comforting illusion that he had read this phantom book cover to cover, for he said it was a popular account. In short, he announced, quote, Yes, sir, folks, I have done my homework, I have read this man's books, and I have found all of them sadly deficient, end quote even the phantom one.
A single word suffices in dealing with Professor Waltke. Gotcha! That the editors of Theonomy of Reform Critique failed to spot Waltke's intellectual posturing testifies to their own lack of care in proofreading the essays. Editors should know the rule in academic publishing. Word for word, more errors pop up in footnotes than anywhere else in a scholarly manuscript. Editors need to verify them one by one, especially in critical books. Nobody bothered. When the editors laid their academic reputations on the line by publishing a book that is basically an attack on the theological integrity of one man, for Bonson is the primary identified target in most of these essays, they owed it to themselves to see to it that all of the cited offending materials actually do exist. Their sloppy editing was matched by Waltke's sloppy research. Of them, it can truly be said, they deserved each other. Any Ph.D. candidate who dared to hand in anything as sloppy as Waltke's essay would be called before his dissertation committee and threatened with dismissal from the program. Or so it was in my day. It may be that dissertation committees these days are sometimes as careless as the editors of Theonomy a Reform Critique were. It is revealing, though, that once certified and tenured academic critics such as Professor Waltke do not take equally great care when launching their attacks on the likes of theonomists. The End the destruction of a rival movement's reputation justifies the means. Misleading documentation. Who is Bruce Waltke? Once upon a time, Bruce Waltke was professor of Old Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary. Confession. Dispensational. Once upon a time, he was professor of Old Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary. Confession. Calvinist. In between, he was a professor at British Columbia's Regent College confession, always open to suggestion, to which he has again returned, shaking both the dispensational and reformed institutional dust off his sandals. This is a major problem with theonomy of reformed critique. So many of its contributors are no longer associated with Westminster Seminary. There is a price to be paid for delaying publication for years on end. So having taught students on various occasions that each of these rival theological systems is closest to the Word of God, and never having put into print the details of whatever it is that he believes is the true and reliable theological system, Professor Waltke was an ideal candidate in the editor's eyes for writing an essay comparing all three systems. Objectivity, don't you know? Most revealing of all, once upon a time, Waltke was a dedicated abortionist. The Fetus Factor I first came across an essay by Professor Waltke when I read a pro-abortion book published by a group of neo-evangelicals, mostly physicians. The book was published in 1969 when the church desperately needed to take an anti-abortion stand, pre-Roe v. Wade. The book was co-published by the Christian Medical Society and Christianity Today. The book, a symposium, revealed the predictable twofold goal of the sponsoring organizations. One, to infuse a primary plank of political liberalism's agenda into evangelical Christianity, Christianity Today's perpetual goal, and, two, to provide moral comfort and theological support for a bunch of self-proclaimed Christian physicians who were about to scrap the anti-abortion provision of the Hippocratic Oath and begin the slaughter of the innocents for fun and profit. To this symposium came Bruce Waltke. To him was given the honor of submitting the first individually signed essay in the book, appropriately entitled, quote, Old Testament Texts, 
bearing on the problem of the control of human reproduction, end quote. As professor of Old Testament, he could speak with academic authority to the other certified experts in their respective fields. This was altogether appropriate. A doctor of theology would show doctors of medicine that eternal life begins only at birth, so that no one need have any qualms about murdering the unborn. What better way to help end the conflicts between modernism and evangelicalism? Dr. Waltke was continuing the tradition of a familiar Old Testament office, that of court prophet. In his essay, he contrasted the modern world with the world of rural, ancient Israel, a world which, quote, valued a large family because it provided both economic and national security. Survival demanded growth and expansion, end quote. However, in stark contrast to this ancient economic condition, quote, for us, children tend to be a financial hindrance rather than help, end quote. This raised a question in his mind. You can see it coming already, can't you? Quote, How relevant is the obviously favorable attitude toward large families in the Old Testament for us? In order to relieve this second tension, we must select only those texts that indicate the eternal purposes and attitudes of the Creator. End quote. His underlying but unstated presupposition is clear. Economics is primary. Economics takes precedence in questions of biblical hermeneutics. That this is only a step away from Marx's economic determinism should have been obvious to every attendee at, the, at that symposium. But profit-seeking professionals are seldom critical of their own presuppositions. And so he began his discussion with a consideration of abortion in a book on human reproduction. Quote, the first argument in favor of permitting induced abortion is the absence of any biblical text forbidding such an act. End quote. Already the assembled physicians must have begun to breathe easier. They could almost hear the cash registers ringing, pre-computers. But isn't the unborn child a soul? God forbid! Let us not refer to unborn child. It is properly called a fetus. This sounds safely impersonal. Quote, a second argument in favor of permitting induced abortion is that God does not regard the fetus as a soul, Hebrew, nefesh, no matter how far gestation has progressed. Therefore, the fetus does not come under the protection of the fifth commandment. We should note this contrast between the Assyrian law and the Mosaic law, the Old Testament, in contrast to the Assyrian code, never reckons the fetus as equivalent to a life. End quote. Well now, all those in favor of identifying their views on abortion with the pagan Assyrian code, which we all know was clearly opposed to the Bible, please stand up. As I said, Professor Waltke is a clever man. He structures his arguments with great rhetorical skill. The problem is, he has made an academic career out of switching arguments. In order to end his argument with authority, he added, quote, The Talmud appears to reflect the biblical balance by allowing abortion when the life of the mother was in danger. Mishnah Oholot. 7.6. Surely, we should all conclude the Talmud is a more reliable commentary on the Old Testament's view of unborn children than the New Testament is. For the New Testament says, And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost, and she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Luke 1, 
41 through 44. Funny thing, how one impersonal fetus leaped when another impersonal fetus entered the room. Just another random event which is all too easily misused by anti-abortion bigots. What did this apologist for convenient murder think was in Mary's womb? The impersonal fetus of God? And had one of these professional shedders of blood performed an abortion on Mary, what would his colleagues imagine that God's response would have been? We can be pretty sure about the answer of the attendees of that symposium. Quote, It all depends on whether the abortionist in question was state-licensed or not. End quote. Go with the flow. That Walking later reversed himself and became an anti-abortionist is to his credit. It was just a little late. He had already given his blessing to those Christian professionals who four years later began to apply their bloody trade legally in the United States. He will someday meet face to face in heaven the unborn victims of his academic presentation. Each person has his own horrors of final judgment to think about. If I were Waltke, this would be mine. Bruce Waltke has had a checkered career. First dispensational, then reformed. First a pro-abortionist, then an anti-abortionist. First a Dallas seminary professor, then a Regent College professor, then a Westminster seminary professor, and once again a Regent College professor. Of Bruce Waltke, it can be truly said, A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. James 1.8 James elaborated on this point. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. James 1.23-24 But Dr. Walke does remember this one thing. He doesn't think theonomy is orthodox. It was remarkably unwise for the editors to rely on the insights of this theological and institutional drifter to help them make their public case against Bonson and theonomy. How does anyone know what Walkie will teach next? We could call this either the Harvey Cox effect or the Clark Pinnock effect. Now he has drifted away again, leaving them holding the bag. They should have seen it coming. At the very least, they should have checked his footnotes. Timothy J. Keller First, Dr. Keller, D. Min, is the author of one book, Ministries of Mercy, The Call of the Jericho Road. Second, he is one of the Gordon-Conwell imports. He offers us Theonomy and the Poor, Some Reflections. His concern is that Ray Sutton, David Chilton, and I do not have the proper view of charity. Whenever you come before the public and assert that your opponent does not have the correct view of something, it is morally and intellectually imperative that you are capable of presenting the proper view. To the extent that you are unsure of the specifics of the proper view, you are to that extent incapable of pressing your case against your opponents. This is the basis of my perennial claim. You can't beat something with nothing. What is Dr. Keller's positive program? He refuses to say. He tells us only what he does not like. He does not like the massively researched studies of recent critics of the public welfare system that show that as the welfare state has grown, so has poverty. Having cited these studies briefly, Dr. Keller says, quote, My own appraisal is that the statistics do not support any one ideology well at all. End quote. Fine. We all know that statistics can be used to prove conflicting positions, but I feel compelled to ask. His appraisal based on what? 
What is the neglected cause of poverty that the state has not solved, the free market has not solved, and the church has not solved? We all admit that poverty exists, but can we ever get rid of it? Will there ever be a time when there is no lower third in the income distribution in the land? Was Jesus misguided when he insisted that the poor will always be with us? Matthew 26.11 Or was he speaking only of his own day? I am willing to hear arguments, but Dr. Keller does not offer any. He only insists that, quote, neither the liberal whitewash of welfare nor conservative denigration is completely warranted, end quote. This is judicial agnosticism. Here is what he does tell us, quote, anyone in need is my neighbor. That is the teaching of the Good Samaritan parable, end quote. Nowhere have I heard it more clearly presented. The Jericho Road is every highway and byway on earth and all the off-road residences as well. This statement, if taken seriously, and no one on earth has ever taken it seriously institutionally, including Dr. Keller, means that there is no escape from the ideal of absolute equality. No matter where we are on earth, if we have a brass farthing more than anyone else on earth, we are not being good Samaritans. Now, Dr. Keller would no doubt rush in to add the inevitable qualifications he really didn't mean that anyone in need is my neighbor. If that also means that I am in any way legally or morally obligated to help my neighbor. If it does not mean this, why bring it up? He means something else. He never says what he means. David Chilton calls this guilt manipulation. Rush Dooney calls it the politics of guilt and pity. I call it the politics of zero conditions. Unconditional bankruptcy. Dr. Keller presents his theology of welfare in the section, The Issue of Conditions. In it, he attacks Ray R. Sutton's paper, The Theology of the Poor. Sutton argues there that churches are not required by God to give money to drug addicts and drunks. A chronic repeater of some offense is also not entitled to aid. Quote, to give to him unconditionally sight unseen is a waste of God's money. End quote. The underlying covenant theology Covenant theology with sanctions, point four, leads Sutton to this conclusion. This conclusion is precisely what repels Keller. Sutton replies to Keller in detail in Theonomy, an informed response. Here I need only to summarize Keller's position. Keller insists that, quote, When God's grace first comes to us, it comes unconditionally, regardless of our merits, end quote. This is true. Although here is the proper place for Keller's discussion of the perseverance of the saints, Keller then makes this leap of faith, quote, At first, we should show mercy to anyone in need. As we have opportunity and resources, we should not turn them away by analyzing them as undeserving, even if sin is part of the complex of their poverty, end quote. Where is a single Bible reference? Are we omniscient the way God is? No then why discuss our obligations to give charity in the context of what a sovereign God does? Why not turn to biblical law to decide what we are responsible for? Answer, because that would be theonomic. And we all know what Keller thinks of theonomy. Quote, Many of my criticisms of their response to the poor rest on deeper reservations I have with their interpretation of the Old Testament civil code. End quote. Quote, but the Reconstructionists, in their mode of interpretation and application of the Old Testament, do not appear to me to be sensitive to the progress of biblical theology, end quote. But of course, quote, 
Nothing that I just said is meant to deny that Israel's code is full of God's wisdom and is all applicable to our own culture. No area of life is untouched by God's law. End quote. Year after year, theonomists get this sort of criticism. Quote, no, we don't want Old Testament laws. Yes, these laws are valuable. No, there are no biblical blueprints. Yes, we must honor biblical principles. No, we must not appeal to the Old Testament law code for our civil laws. Yes, we must respect them. No, we should not be biblicists. Yes, we must pay attention to the God's moral principles. End quote. On and on and on. Double talk. It is dialecticism for conservative Christians. It is judicial agnosticism. All they know is this. The negative sanctions of Deuteronomy 28, 15-68 sound politically right-wing and insensitive. The Blessings of Serfdom What is highly revealing is Keller's appeal to Edmund P. Clowney's interpretation of Joseph in Egypt. In a long footnote, Keller cites my view of the famine in Egypt and Joseph's purchase of the entire nation, except the lands owned by the priests, as a curse. Keller says that Clowney denies this. Quote, in fact, Edmund Clowney has suggested to me, in a personal conversation, that this was the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy that Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to the nations. End quote. Keller continues, Joseph, quote, was acting on the basis of a principle that a good civil magistrate is concerned for the temporal welfare of his people. God did not briefly give Joseph permission to do something sinful, and if it was not sinful, then the principle remains that the government can do charity. End quote. Joseph acting as the head of a pagan state provides us with an acceptable model for a civil magistrate. The key question is this In what circumstances is his model judicially legitimate? In a pagan state or a Christian state? I argue that his model is valid only in the former case. Pagans who break God's civil laws deserve to be enslaved politically, since they are enslaved religiously. This is the message of Genesis. Joseph did the righteous thing in extracting everything from the Egyptians in the first two years, their land, their animals, and their money. Then, when they faced starvation in the third year, he gave them a choice, either perpetual bondage to Pharaoh, plus a perpetual obligation to pay 20% of their increase in taxes, or else, starvation. This rate of taxation was double the rate that Samuel said would constitute God's judgment against Israel. 1 Samuel 8, 15, and 17. A side note, to return to the double tyranny taxation rate of Egypt, every western industrial nation would have to cut taxes by at least 50%. You think this century is not under God's judgment? but seminary theologians have yet to notice. We are told that Joseph extracted all the traffic would bear. In the classic line of the capitalist villain in Frank Norris's socialist novel, The Octopus. This was a blessing of God, concludes E.P. Clowney. For some, it was. In history, every blessing can become a curse, and every curse on the covenant breaker can become a blessing if he repents. This is not what Clowney had in mind. Keller's argument comes through as clear as crystal. The blessing was part of the new Egyptian welfare state. Quote, I am sure everyone in, in Egypt would have called the program a blessing. The alternative was mass starvation. End quote. This shows that Dr. Keller does not understand economics. The text shows that Joseph made the Egyptians pay dearly to stay alive. 
He bought their lands in the name of the state. He brought them into permanent slavery. He bargained sharply. There was another quite obvious alternative. Joseph could simply have given away the food year by year. The people would have retained their land and their legal status as free men. Later, Joseph gave food to his family. He did not enslave them. But Dr. Keller does not mention this alternative. Why not? I offer this possibility because he is insensitive to the tyranny of the welfare state. The obvious does not occur to him when he discusses the workings of the welfare state. The same is true of Clowney. Clowney goes so far as to say that this action on Joseph's part was an aspect of the prophecy that Abraham would bless the nations. I argue in my commentary on Genesis that what Joseph did was tyrannical, not immoral, but righteous, for he brought a pagan, God-hating nation under God's negative sanctions in history. He enslaved them. This was God's curse against them. As a side note, I first heard the argument that Joseph in Egypt provides a legitimate model for accepting the ideal of a welfare state when I was a student at Westminster Seminary. The idea was attributed to a professor at Covenant College. I knew I had my life's work cut out for me when I heard that one. But Keller says that Joseph was, quote, acting on the basis of principle that a good civil magistrate is concerned for the temporal welfare of his people, end quote. Got that? The temporal welfare of his people? Right. Just have the state take 20% of men's food for seven years, store it in state-owned warehouses, sell it back to them at high prices when famine hits, legally enslave them in the process, and then tax them forever at twice the rate that God identifies as tyrannical? Keller and Clowney call this grace? This is what passes for theological scholarship at Westminster Seminary today. Would Machen be proud? Would Van Til? Now, consider Keller's discussion of a private individual who dares to rent an apartment to anyone who will offer a higher rent than a particular poor man is willing to pay. Quote, Should the government legislate against homosexuality but not against landlords who gouge poor tenants with unfair rents? End quote. Here it is. The familiar call for government-mandated rent controls the classic means of reducing the supply of rented space. First, I want to see in print exactly which negative sanctions Dr. Keller proposes that the state impose against homosexuals. Be specific, sir. Let us see if this is merely rhetorical flourish. Let us read your opinion regarding the specified biblical civil sanction against homosexuality. Execution. Leviticus 20.13. Be frank. Second, I want to see the biblical and predictable civil standard of fairness that Keller thinks the state should enforce on owners of rental property. Also, why limit this to rentals? By what theoretical argument can rent controls be distinguished from other price controls? Why not enforce standards of fairness on every price charged to the poor? Here we are again, right back in early medieval scholasticism's just price theory. The later scholastics abandoned it. The New England Puritans tried this approach and abandoned it as unworkable three centuries ago. But now it is being revived, and all in the name of the latest scholarship at Gordon-Conwell Seminary and Westminster. Why was Joseph a bringer of God's blessings, according to Keller Clowney? Their implicit answer? Because he was a state bureaucrat. Why is price gouging wrong? Apparently only because it is a private, voluntary transaction. I ask, 
What is rent gouging? How can it be defined, either biblically or economically? Yes, an owner sometimes raises the rent. This is because he thinks that another would-be renter is willing to pay him more money. Keller does not understand this fundamental principle of free market pricing. Renters compete against renters, while owners compete against owners. Why is it wrong for a house owner to accept an offer from someone to rent his house or apartment at a rent that another renter is unwilling to pay? Why blame the house owner for gouging? Why not blame the new renter as a cutthroat competitor against the original renter? Why does the principle of high bid wins outrage Keller in this case, but not when Joseph honored it by enslaving the Egyptians? Because in this case, a private individual is making money. Keller offers us no other way to distinguish the two kinds of pricing. My point in my Genesis commentary was this. When the state has a monopoly, tyranny is always a threat. But when one renter bids against another to rent scarce space from one house owner among thousands, there is nothing remotely questionable morally about allowing the owner to rent to the highest bidder. Renters compete against renters. It is an auction process for allocating scarce space. Keller, Protestant scholastic that he is, does not understand this. To prove that rent gouging exists and is immoral, he cites Richard Baxter, who wrote 300 years ago and who offered no Bible verses to support his position. Baxter, of course, was a Protestant scholastic. For example, a Christian directory. I guess this persuaded the editors. No Theonomic Programs Now we come to the climax. Keller argues that we theonomists have suggested no positive, privately funded programs to help the poor. But he has a serious problem. George Grant has proposed lots of workable programs, and he personally created and directed one such program in Humboldt, Texas. American Vision published George Grant's Bringing in the Sheaves, 1985. Now we come to the climax. Keller argues that we theonomists have suggested no positive, privately funded programs to help the poor. But he has a serious problem. George Grant has proposed lots of workable programs, and he personally created and directed one such program in Humble, Texas. American Vision published George Grant's Bringing in the Sheaves, 1985. I published his book, In the Shadow of Plenty, The Biblical Blueprint for Welfare, Dominion Press, 1986, as part of my Biblical Blueprint series. I also published his book, The Dispossessed Homelessness in America, Dominion Press, 1986. Keller agrees with Grant's views, and he says so. Therefore, he offers the following explanation of the theonomist's lack of charitable concern. George Grant is not a theonomist. Keller devotes his final four pages to this thesis. We theonomists are always being accused of putting politics at the top of our agenda. This is a misrepresentation, but it is common. Now, would you imagine that I would hire a non-theonomist to write the biblical blueprint book on political action? No, neither would I. The book is The Changing of the Guard, Biblical Blueprints for Political Action. Its author, George Grant. Does Keller mention this? No. That's it, folks. Here we have it. The second best example of the demise of the scholarly tradition of the older Westminster. The best example is Meether. See below. When the facts don't fit, just deny the facts. Several years ago, ICE paid George Grant to write a how-to manual on operating a local church charity program. 
This was before he went to work at Coral Ridge Ministries. Since I am still awaiting that manual, I figured I had better find out if George is still a theonomist. So I sent him a letter to get his present views. Here is his reply. Quote, I have never hidden my bushel under a basket. Anyone who reads my work can tell immediately what schools of thought have influenced my thinking. I am a Calvinistic, Reformed, Covenantal, and post-mill Presbyterian. Spurgeon, Burkhoff, Warfield, Schaff, Van Til, Frame, Poitras, Jordan, North, Shemin, Belloc, Chesterton, and, yes, I am not afraid to admit it in public, Francis Schaeffer, are the men who have most shaped my theology. End quote. Letter dated September 24th, 1990. This eclecticism is not a denial of theonomy. It is an assertion of intellectual independence. He says later in his letter that he is not a theonomist in the Bonson and Rush Dooney mold. So what? Keller's article does not even mention Bonson. It is an attack on me, Chilton, and Sutton. Furthermore, at the time that Grant wrote these books, he was a full-time pastor and a member of the Presbytery, the tiny, now defunct, Association of Reformed Churches, whose main congregation was Westminster Presbyterian Church in Tyler. That denomination was self-consciously Christian Reconstructionist. In any case, whatever I publish is consistent with Christian Reconstruction, irrespective of the confession of the author. Let me make myself perfectly clear. Since I am putting up most of the money for the publishing of Christian Reconstruction books these days, it seems a bit silly for a critic to claim that I do not know what I am talking about, that what I publish in the field of local church charity is not, in fact, Reconstructionist material. There is a phenomenon called the division of labor. It is a product of God's grant of many differing gifts to individuals. 1 Corinthians 12 the fact that I personally have not written a book on private charity is irrelevant if I have commissioned someone else to write it for me. Does this make sense to the reader? This possibility apparently did not occur to Dr. Keller. Keller's argument is this. We Reconstructionists have published no compassionate, help-filled books on how to alleviate poverty. Therefore, the Reconstructionist worldview is not compassionate. Then, when we present Grant's books as evidence that we have a compassionate worldview, he tells us that Grant is not a Reconstructionist. I am reminded of Van Til's description of operational presuppositionalism. A man says, My neck can catch all the fish in the sea. A second man denies it. The first man then tosses it in his net. The second man spots a small fish that got through the net. Look, he says, there goes a fish you, your net didn't catch. To which the first man replies, Anything my net doesn't catch isn't a fish. Dr. Keller threw down his net, and Grant swam through it. Hence, Grant is not a theonomic fish. Therefore, Westminster could not hire Bonson, and had to fire Shepard. John R. Meather Walkie's essay is highly peculiar. Keller's is ridiculous. John Meather's is perverse. Mr. Meather was a librarian at Westminster when he wrote his essay, The Theonomic Attraction. He is now a librarian at the Orlando campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. I have already presented my objections to his millennial views and his views on God's sanctions in history, as I made plain in chapter 6. My objections there were strictly theological, not so in the case of The Theonomic Attraction. 
This essay is by far the most objectionable in the book. Indeed, short of Hal Lindsey's identification of the Christian Reconstructionists as, quote, the most anti-Semitic movement I've seen since Hitler, end quote. Mr. Meether's article is the most vicious, hate-filled patchwork of lies that has yet been written about us, including the piece in The Humanist. There is simply no excuse for such a piece in a book representing Westminster Seminary. An essay like this can only backfire on him and the editors. The Ninth Commandment is still in force. In the original version of my response, I outdid myself in the zingers I included, and some of the readers of this book know that I am pretty good in the barb field, but I have removed all of them. Mr. Meether's piece reflects not just spirited polemical discourse, which I always appreciate, but a nearly pathological hatred. It is not just that the essay is vitriolic. Who am I, after all, to complain about vitriol? No. His essay is a personal attack on my church, my intellectual integrity, and my commitment to scholarship. I deeply resent it. The Initial Phase The initial phase of the essay is not evil, silly, perhaps, but not evil. He first raises a sociological question. Quote, If theonomy is the consistent teaching of Scripture and the Westminster Confession of Faith, why does it seem that we have discovered it only now? in late 20th century America? Why not, say, in 17th century England or in 19th century Holland? End quote. Notice how he drops a very important modifier, 17th century New England. There he has a problem, as his colleague Dr. Logan has in chapter 15. Theonomy was the operating foundation of the Puritan Commonwealth in Massachusetts in the first generation, 1630 to 60. This is why Roger Williams fled and invented political pluralism. The answer to his question can be found in two words. Van Till. He might have written, indeed. He is implicitly writing on every page of his essay, quote, If natural law theory is inconsistent with the teaching of Scripture, why does it seem that we have discovered this fact only now, in late 20th century America? Why not in 17th century England, or in... 19th century Holland, end quote. In Mr. Meether's system, as I have argued in chapter 6, there is no place for progressive sanctification of the church in history. The redemptive historical world of the Old Testament, tied as it was to God's predictable covenantal sanctions in history, ends for him, as it ends in Klein's theology in 70 AD. Meether is a thoroughgoing intrusionist. So, he fails to grasp the possibility that Van Til created a significant revolution in the history of the Church, a revolution that categorically overthrew biblically natural law theory. Because he fails to comprehend the reality or even the possibility of significant historical development in New Testament times, he offers his rhetorical question. He surveys the history of American pluralism since 1788 and concludes that America is not now a Christian nation. He cites Will Herberger's book, Protestant, Catholic, Jew, to make his point. But not, I assure you, Herberg's brilliant essay on America's civil religion, in which Herberg identified this pluralistic religion for what it surely is, biblically speaking, idolatry. Herberg wrote, quote, But if it is an authentic religion as civil religion, America's civil religion is not and cannot be seen as authentic Christianity or Judaism 
or even as a special cultural version of either or both. Because they serve a jealous God, these biblical faiths cannot allow any claim to ultimacy and absoluteness on the part of anything or any idea or any system short of God, even when what claims to be the ultimate locus of ideas, ideals, values, and allegiance is the very finest of human institutions. It is still human, man's own construction and not God himself. To see America's civil religion as somehow standing above or beyond the biblical religions of Judaism and Christianity, and Islam too, as somehow including them and finding a place for them in its overarching unity, is idolatry, however innocently held, and whatever may be the subjective intentions of the believers. End quote. So far, Mether is merely ill-informed. He is an amateur who is in too far over his head academically. He has not done his homework. This is typical of our critics. As such, his efforts would be worth a few zingers, a little public roasting. But this is not the heart of his criticism of the theonomists. The essay then degenerates into a personal attack on my integrity. And not just an attack, a tissue of lies. Sola Scriptura, Beneath Contempt Mr. Meether attacks what he calls the Biblicism of Theonomy. In his view, Biblicism, also known in church history as Sola Scriptura, is a liability. He specifically identifies an example of a comparable Biblicism, belief in the six-day creation. He identifies belief in such a view of creation as fundamentalism. And you know what they think about fundamentalism at Gordon College. Quote, Fundamentalists use the Bible as a textbook on geology, finding evidence of a literal six-day creation and a 10,000-year-old earth. End quote. What? The Bible as a textbook? Outrageous! Substitute the word marriage for geology and see if you like the result. This view of creation is standard fare at the neo-evangelical institutions that have been waging war against Calvinism since the end of World War II. Sadly, there is no course at Westminster Seminary on the necessity of the six-day creation, any more than there is a section in the required ethics course on abortion as murder. This is why the editors were willing to allow this passage to get into the book. It was not enough to be neutral on the six-day creation. Westminster Seminary is now publicly represented by someone who is verbally contemptuous of it. Westminster's confession gets worse and worse over time. Then, Mr. Meether overplays his hand. In doing so, the tone and character of his essay changes. He goes beyond rhetoric. He lies. Let us not try to put a good face on it. He lies. He lies for Jesus. He lies for the kingdom of God. He lies for the sake of revenge. He deliberately misleads the reader. I become his visible target. But his reader is the real victim. The Gold Standard He identifies my Biblical Blueprints series as an example of Biblicism. He specifically cites my book, Honest Money, and asks, quote, Why, for example, should the United States return to the gold standard? Because careful and prudent economic analysis suggests it will produce a healthier economy. No, because Deuteronomy 25.15 says that you shall have just weights and measures. End quote. Two comments are in order. First, why should I trust modern economists more 
then I trust Deuteronomy 25.15. Why should anyone in his right mind trust modern economists with or without Deuteronomy 25.15? Second, honest money specifically teaches that the United States should not return to the gold standard. I wrote the book in order to deny the legitimacy biblically of the traditional gold standard. Yet in order to ridicule me and my biblicism, Meether deliberately twists what I wrote. I am assuming here that he read the book. If he did not read it, then he is not a liar. He is merely a phony. In the chapter called A Biblical Monetary System, under the subhead called The Gold Standard, I write this, quote, For the state to say that only gold should circulate is a restriction on individual liberty. For the state to say that only gold is legal tender, a legally mandatory form of money, is also a violation of individual liberty. Let people decide how and what they use as money, provided that no fractional reserves are involved. End quote. A traditional gold standard requires the state to define its official currency in terms of weight and fineness of gold, and then to buy and sell gold at this defined price. This gets the state into the money business. There is no warrant for this practice in the history of Old Testament Israel. The New Testament example is the Roman Empire not a morally uplifting example. A traditional gold standard is better than a fiat, unbacked money standard, but it transfers too much sovereignty to the state. It also allows the state to change the rules at its own convenience, that is, to redefine the currency unit, usually by defrauding present holders of the paper currency, less gold per currency unit, or to seize allowing citizens to make withdrawals. Better to have the state policing private issuers of gold and warehouse receipts to gold, and then to collect its taxes in a specified form of private currency. Under such an arrangement, the politicians have a greater incentive to police the state's sources of tax revenues than they do to police the state's own monetary practices. What freedom produces is parallel standards. Various forms of money compete with each other. The state is to establish no fixed bureaucratic price between monies. The decisions of free men can then determine which form or forms of money become more acceptable. There is nothing magic about money. It is simply the most marketable commodity. The market establishes this, not the coercive power of the state. Money is the product of voluntary human action, not of bureaucratic design. Money is the product of freedom, and it reinforces freedom. Yet, Mr. Meether equates my thesis in honest money with a biblical defense of the gold standard. In short, he faked the reference. He simply made it up. It made me look like a fool, he imagined, building my case for biblically honest money on the biblical law, not a suggestion against false weights and measures, because he was neither academically or exegetically equipped to refute my thesis. He imputed to me the very idea I wrote the book to refute, or else he never bothered to read the book. North, the charismatic. Meether identifies me as, quote, a professed convert to charismatic thought, end quote. A professed convert is someone who publicly adopts a particular position on belief. When, then, was my profession? What evidence does he offer for this accusation? He refers to a newsletter I wrote that reported that my wife was healed by a long-standing physical affliction the very day the elders of our church anointed her with oil and prayed over her. But he does not mention that it was my wife who was healed. That would make my case look too strong, a personal witness to the truth? He begins with a partial citation of my account. Quote, the healing. Note, 
He uses brackets so as to avoid mentioning my wife. Quote, did not lead to tongue speaking, but it did lead to a new willingness to accept the fact that no one ecclesiastical organization has all the answers. End quote. This ecclesiastical relativism is astonishing from an allegedly reformed author, but it is consistent with contemporary evangelicalism. End quote. Notice the pejorative phrases ecclesiastical relativism, contemporary evangelicalism, yet Westminster Seminary has been developing its academic program for a quarter of a century by adopting the ideal of broad-based evangelicalism. My view is this, Calvinism is true, but the Calvinist scholastic tradition has ignored biblically legitimate practices in other traditions. What this man does not admit to his readers is that in Reformed circles prior to the 19th century, Healing services were considered acceptable, and they are still practiced in Anglicanism and Episcopalianism. He neglects to mention that the Tyler, Texas Church, prudently unnamed, that I belong to, joined the Reformed Episcopal Church within a year after the cited newsletter appeared, a denomination which authorizes healing services based on James 5.14. Had he mentioned this, he would not have been able to insert the pejorative phrase, quote, allegedly reformed author, end quote. But that would have spoiled all the fun. This man obviously delights in the thought of scoring big with uninformed readers who are ignorant of church history in general, and my church background in particular. I will put it more bluntly than this. Not having been gifted in life with a taste for the rigors of serious scholarship, Mr. Meether falls back on the time-tested hatchet techniques of innuendo and the deliberate deception of the reader. He does not understand that the biblical goal of rhetoric is to accent the truth for the benefit of the reader and your own cause. The goal is not deliberately to mislead the reader and then later get identified in print by your intended victim as morally lax. I well understand that Schofieldian antinomians Dave Hunt and Hal Lindsay do not recognize these principles of Christian rhetoric. I do not understand why the Westminster Symposium's editors didn't. They needed to explain these basic rules of efficient hatchet job writing, an area in which I am certainly experienced, to this young man, who was just beginning his career as a writer. That such an essay as his got past the editors is one more testimony to their embarrassing lack of editorial judgment. They just could not say no. They did not understand how important this willingness to say no is to the editor's task. North's Contempt for God's Church he lists nine of the ten volumes in the series that my company financed and I edited, the Biblical Blueprint series. He left out my book, Liberating Planet Earth, the introductory volume in the series. In a footnote, he adds this insight, quote, Note what is lacking in this series. There is no Biblical Blueprint on the Church. This is further evidence of theonomy's low view of the Church, end quote. What this man does not bother to mention is that in the year that the first four volumes of the Biblical Blueprint series were published, 1986, Geneva Ministries and Tyler published the fourth and final volume of the series, Christianity and Civilization. Its topic was The Reconstruction of the Church, edited by James Jordan. It has a 1985 date on it, but it actually appeared in 1986. It is about 350 pages long. I have two essays in it. There are three articles by Ray Sutton and one by George Grant, both of whom also wrote two volumes each in the Biblical Blueprint series. In the introduction to that collection of essays, Jordan announced that the following year his book, The Sociology of the Church, 
would appear, which it did, right on schedule, unlike the journal. Far from proclaiming a low view of the church, Jordan's book proclaimed such a high church view that he was repeatedly accused of having moved either toward Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. Yet, in 1990, John R. Meether, librarian, was either unaware of all this or was unwilling to inform his readers. Before it was over, my profit-seeking company sank almost a half a million dollars into the Blueprint series, if we count salaries and advertising expenses. Frankly, the project came close to bankrupting the firm. We promised early subscribers to the series 10 volumes, and I had to write four of them in one year to meet the schedule. Paying authors for five manuscripts that we had to reject. Yes, I was an editor who had learned to say no, even when it cost me. Yet here we find Mr. Meether complaining to all the world that I did not also publish an 11th volume on the church, despite the fact, never mentioned by Meether, that in nine of the ten volumes in the Biblical Blueprint series, there is a chapter on the church and its responsibilities in the area of social change. This man is not to be taken seriously as a scholar. I just ran a computerized word search on all the newsletters and cover letters that I personally have written for the Institute for Christian Economics from May 1985 through February 1991. Of the 173 files on my hard disk, the word church appears in 103 of them. I operate a parachurch ministry. This means it runs on donations. Here is my stated position on tithe money and donations. I wrote this in Christian Reconstruction, 14, number 2, March-April, 1990. See if it reflects a low view of the church. Quote, If I were a donor to a parachurch ministry or any other kind of Christian ministry, I would specifically inquire of the head of the ministry regarding his local church membership and the name of the church's senior pastor. If he is not a member of a local church, I would cut off all contributions this is not the same thing as refusing to buy services or goods from a ministry. Also, these ministries should make it clear that they do not seek people's tithe money, the first 10%. They should be supported exclusively by individual offerings above the tithe and by contributions from churches. These are measures to be taken by donors. End quote. Let me know when you see the head of any other parachurch ministry send this message to his donors. I reprint this entire newsletter as Appendix C, just to make everything as clear as possible. Understand that I am reprinting this letter only because of Meether's outrageous accusation against theonomy. Let anyone imagine that I wrote this because I had an advanced copy of Meether's essay. I didn't. I should point out that it has been my policy to send back large donations to donors to make sure that they are not sending money that is owed to their local church. In November of 1988, I sent back a $25,000 check with a warning to the donor that if he was a church member, he owed 10% to his church before he owed any other organization. Quote, Your donation of $25,000 is much appreciated. It is a very large donation. While it is not normal for recipient organizations to refuse donations or in any way discourage them, I want to get things clear in both our minds. It is my policy to recommend that donors tithe to their churches before making donations to ICE. I do this because parachurch ministries have invaded many of the traditional areas of church service, just as the state has, and this has weakened the churches. 
I also believe that the tithe is owed to God through the church. Naturally, I have good uses for the donation, but I don't want to take the money on terms that will put either of us on God's hot seat. If you are not a member of a church because you are not a Christian, then I guess ICE is better than most places to spend the money. But if you're a church member, I want us both to be sure that ICE isn't draining off money that belongs elsewhere. I will wait for you to let me know that for sure you want the money to go to ICE before I cash the check. End quote. He was not a church member, so he sent it back. Only then did ICE cash it. In Biblical Economics Today, Volume 13, Number 1, December-January 1991, I wrote the following on the centrality of the church. The essay is titled, Tithing and Submission. It proclaims the doctrine of God's sanctions in history that John R. Meather emphatically rejects. See Chapter 6. Here is my position. Quote, the presence of a self-maledictory oath is the mark of covenantal sovereignty. Only three institutions lawfully can require such an oath, church, state, and family. Such an oath implicitly or explicitly calls down God's negative sanctions on the person who breaks the conditions of the oath. These sanctions are historical, although few Christians believe this, despite Paul's warning. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. 1 Corinthians 11, 27, 32 Self-judgment, institutional judgment, and then God's judgment all take place in history. But the modern church has grave doubts about this idea of God's negative sanctions in history. It therefore does not expect to experience God's promised positive sanctions in history. The next step is obvious. To lose faith in meaningful historical progress. Here is the origin of pesimillennialism's lack of confidence in the work of the church, the effects of the gospel, and the future of Christianity. Without the oath and its associated sanctions, the church is not legally distinguishable from any other oathless institution. Furthermore, the oath that creates a new family is taken no more seriously than an oath of church membership. So, only one oath-bound institution remains that is still taken seriously, because of the sanctions attached to the oath, the state. The rise of statism is always accompanied by the decline of the church and the decline of the family. Which oath is supposed to be central in society? The church's oath? Why? Because only the church survives the final judgment. It alone extends into eternity. It is the church that alone has been assigned the task of baptizing whole nations in Christ's name. Matthew 28, 18-20 Today, this view of the centrality of the church is not taken seriously. Liberals affirm the centrality of the state. Conservatives affirm the centrality of the family. Both views are at war against the plain teaching of Jesus. End quote. John R. Meather is unconscionable. He is an intellectually dishonest man. He lies. He is, a, he is a disgrace to Reformed Theological Seminary, which now employs him. He is Westminster's disgrace for as long as this edition of Theonomy and Reform Critique remains in print. Meather is not an academically gifted person. I do not mean merely intellectually. I mean above all, morally. 
He lacks the moral fiber to engage in academic discourse. He not only lies, he lies incompetently. Had he contented himself with being a librarian, I would have no complaint. But the editors treated him as if he were a scholar. They did him and the readers no favor. While he may be intellectually capable of shelving books, John R. Meether has no place teaching on any Christian campus. I never remember writing this about anyone before. There is no excuse for what he did. He should be fired. I don't think he will be. He is inside the club. Being inside the club means never having to say you're sorry for vilifying those outside it. Once inside the club, the Ninth Commandment no longer applies to those outside, or so the club members imagine. They have no fear of Aikens. Conclusion To the editors I say, gentlemen, with power comes responsibility. You exercise power as editors, but you do not exercise it responsibly. In the case of Bruce Waltke, you published a man nearing the end of his career, who has been adrift theologically for years. This was, at best, an unwise decision. He has now wandered off again. In the case of John Meether, you published the essay of a young man, theologically immature man, at the very beginning of his career, a man who needed not only editorial counsel and spiritual counsel, but perhaps even psychological counsel, a man so eaten up with hatred of theonomy, God's revealed law and its historical sanctions, that he has rejected the Ninth Commandment as no longer binding on him. He really does act as though he thinks he is beyond God's negative sanctions. He was certainly correct in thinking that he was beyond yours. Didn't you see that this man may be emotionally disturbed to the point of no longer being willing to discern fact from fiction? Didn't you check any of his footnotes? Wasn't the outrageousness of his claims, for example, North as a converted charismatic, a tip-off that this man's judgment was poisoned by hate? Can you distinguish rhetorical excess from outright lying? Book editors should see to it that each of the contributions is theologically consistent internally. If the book is a critical evaluation of a movement or idea, they should also see to it that the contributions are generally consistent with the other contributions. At the very least, they should warn their readers of the differing bases of the critiques. Most crucial of all, they should see to it that all specific criticisms are accurately documented. You failed in all four of these tasks. The book presents no sustained argument against theonomy, no unified alternative viewpoint to theonomy, no agreed-upon principle of biblical interpretation, and remarkably few references to the body of theological literature known as theonomy, especially anything published after 1985. You seem to be governed by only one principle. If an essay casts some doubt on any aspect of theonomy, true or false, we'll publish it. Ultimately, an editor's task is to reject lousy essays. That task, above all, is the one that you too shirked. As agents bearing lawful authority, men must either be willing to impose negative sanctions or else risk coming under them. It is clear to me why the Presbyterian and Reformed Publishing Company rejected this manuscript. Why Sondervan's academic subdivision, its academic branch, accepted it is beyond me. They, too, needed a few astute goons to do some serious verification. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. 
We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.